You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In a more general way, finding the sweet young head waiting here to meet her is all of a piece with Miriam's New York in the new decade. As though she's invoked him, smoked him into being. It was once the case that, in pursuit of such essences, such encounters, you migrated from the drab gray lands that extended in every direction, seeking a small enchanted quadrant. McDougall Street, Mott Street, Bleecker Street, a brick cellar on Barrow where a jazz trio's instruments lay gathering dust. Hipsterdom's tiny population glommed new members those days at an appreciable pace. Anyone arriving on that postcard-sized scene had by all appearances grown sideburns just five minutes before, seeking approval of the essential few who'd each personally gotten turned on by either Allen Ginsberg, Mez Mesro, or Seymour Krim. If back then you saw Tully Kupferberg or Ramblin' Jack Elliott on the street, you not only greeted them and were greeted in fond return, you knew that Elliott was as much a New York Jew as Kupferberg, an open secret to all but the squares who paid to see his cowboy shtick. I guess you're going to have to set up that reading by saying she's stoned herself and is meeting a, a television executive, or not executive, but a television production assistant who's also stoned, and realizing that everyone at that moment in New York City is probably stoned. Tommy Gogan came in and kissed Rose's hand. He'd put on a tie beneath his denim jacket, and he knew to take off his cloth cap, and the tiny burr of his accent was, if a slight put-on, nevertheless a million miles from the slack, thuggish tongue that arose typically in the collision of Irish parents and Queen's streets. Underneath, his ginger hair was combed and not too long ago cut. He ran his fingers through to revive it from the pressure of the cap, showing a charming eagerness in presenting himself to his prospective mother-in-law. Tommy Gogan had as Rose's sisters would have said of a baby born under dubious circumstances, yet nevertheless to be embraced as marvelously adequate, two arms and two legs. He had two eyes and a nose in the middle of his face. He wanted to marry Miriam. He talked of himself as a fighter for peace and equality, not immodestly. Yes, he came from the ranks of the rather corny brothers and had appeared with them on The Steve Allen Show, but his own art was less traditional in the Blarney sense, more directed to international themes and American styles, specifically the blues, which term he pronounced as if firmly capitalized. Where had Rose heard this before? The dungarees and dust bowl heroes, the Verschluggener blues, the children of McDougal Street were busy refurbishing the old fantasy. The bumpkin arts, the nobility of the country poor, the redemption lurking across some agrarian horizon just outside the city's bounds the popular front, all over again. Jonathan Lethem won the National Book Critics Circle Award for his novel Motherless Brooklyn. He's the author of The Fortress of Solitude, Men and Cartoons, You Don't Love Me Yet, Chronic City, and The Ecstasy of Influence. His new novel is Dissident Gardens. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Thanks for having me back. This is the third of your New York novels. Will there be more? Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have this really charged relationship to the city, and uh, I guess you could even call it a love-hate relationship. But I, um, I, I don't have a really clear plan to write another, like, sort of big, widescreen New York book right at the moment. Uh, I'm thinking about a few smaller, almost novellas that I might tackle. But, yeah, New York as a subject is probably unavoidable for me again. This is such a magnificent book and so well written. One of the things that strikes me right when you start reading it is the prose voice that you found, which I think is different from any prose voice I've heard you uh, speak slash write in. Well, thanks for for all you say. And yeah, I was pushing into a different register. I mean, several different registers because this book switches voices, I think, a few times. I guess I've learned new tricks, partly. I've just enriched my my understanding of what I can do by by reading and, and, and attempting different things. But I also, you know, in a really definite way, this book comes out of, I guess, a kind of ancestral voice that there's, 
something that happened for me in the conjunction of recalling my grandmother and her generation, which I was doing a lot of in order to develop the material for this book. You know, the aunts and uncles that I that I knew as a child who who were from this older version of, you know, New York vernacular. And also reading more in, in my research and just in my pleasure reading, reading more Jewish writers from mid-century or a little before, a little after, the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I think something clicked and I, I picked up threads of, you know, maybe a kind of a, a, a register that was in my brain. It was in, in, in my uh, own voice, but I hadn't emphasized it. I hadn't explored it. I hadn't developed it to this extent. But I found suddenly I could do that. So it's a little more Jewish in some ways. It's a little, uh, it's, it's got a kind of a, a, a thick uh, Yiddish sarcastic undertone in certain ways. And it, um, and it relates a lot to the certain models uh, of what I guess I would say in a very general way, like mid-century American urban writers, uh, particularly New York Jews. It's so much fun, so big and so sweet and so full of life. Tell us a little bit about the woman who inspired Rose. Well, right. So I have this grandmother. I mean, we all have, have one, or most of us do. And, and I knew her as a kid as an overwhelming presence, really bold, really charming and, and charismatic, but also really dark, challenging, very ready with her own sarcasm and, and with dark areas, mysteries, problems, old buried grudges that weren't completely buried, that were sort of, you know, rising to the surface sometimes. And as a kid, she was she was a bundle. I really uh, had an intense relationship to her, and it sometimes meant wanting to be away from her, wanting to not deal with her. But in recalling her, I realized how much of her legacy was in me, how much I'd already written about her indirectly. You know, in some really peculiar way, the character of Frank Minna the, uh, the, in, in Motherless Brooklyn, the street operator. He's kind of a, a, a Italian, you know, wannabe mobster who walks around Carroll Gardens and goes, puts his head into every shop and has something to say to every passersby. He was a kind of version of my grandmother and her super dynamic, supercharged relationship to her neighborhood, which was Sunnyside, Queens. And I'd, I'd written about her kind of semi-consciously there, but no one would know it. So I decided I'm going to attack this mystery, this legacy in a direct way in this book and, and base a character on, you know, on what I, what I do know about her, but also on my, you know, what I guess you'd say, you know, my projections, wishes, lies, and dreams about the parts of my grandmother's life that I couldn't know but I could guess about. Well, this book is so big and so chock full of so many really interesting characters. You started with your grandmother. Did you go just begin exploring her and did the other characters grow out of your wish to write about her or did they pop up by themselves? Well, I, you know, I built it around the, the mother-daughter pair, but I knew from the start that this book would to, to take the shape I wanted it to, which was, you know, a very intimidating project, the, the, the largeness and the kind of... Uh, encompassing quality that I had in mind, I would need a lot of angles of attack. I would need a lot of points of view. And actually, the very first character I wrote was the uh, middle-aged black academic remembering Rose, you know, from, from his own middle age uh, in, the, in the present. I wrote, I wrote a chapter set in, uh, you know, well, like 2012. I was writing it as where it ended up. I was writing this five years ago. That was about someone thinking, oh, my God, all those people from so long ago. I don't, how do I even begin to deal with them? I don't want to think about them. It was, a, it was a kind of simultaneously an invocation and a warning, you know, uh, abandon hope all ye who enter the veil of American Communist Party members from 1956. You know, do you really want to think about this? <laughs> it was as if I was warning myself away from the material. But Cicero became a very interesting character to me because of his ambivalence about uh, remembering her power and her, her influence on him. Memory is such an important part of this book, and I love uh, Sergius, his his memory projects and, and his forgetting projects. I think those are really fascinating uh, perspectives. Yeah, well, I guess in some really fundamental way, the book is partly about the enshrinement of our our 
past influences, even if they're as specific as a parent, versus amnesia, trying to move on, trying to divorce oneself, uh, transform oneself, leave it all behind, you know, and this constant dynamic between denouncing where your parents are from and accepting that you're completely their creature, that you're made of their stuff, you know, ideologically as well as on a DNA level. <laughs> and uh, and so Sergius is one of a chain of characters doomed to, to have to recall and embrace and, and, and navigate his, his own legacy. I, I love the construction of this novel. It's just really amazingly well put together in terms of the way you play with chronology and telling the story. This is a, an amazing work of storytelling, and I'd like you to talk about putting it together, uh, the pieces together. Did this flow from the tip of your pen, or did this was this the result of uh, torture? Thank you so much. <laughs> I, You know, I... Uh... To, to come up with what I ended up with, this this unusual structure and its relationship to time, it didn't involve a lot of false starts or reconfigurations, but it involved a lot of sitting and just abiding, waiting to understand how to get at the material I wanted to and in, in what shape it should it should be presented. And I think that it was a slow book for me to write because I just had to kind of stop a lot sometimes and sit with it and wait to understand what would come next. But finally, what it it seems to me, the, the shape it took, the, the way it made sense, was to see it as a, a series of plunging explorations of memory material. And, you know, our relationship to the past isn't simple and continuous and undeflected. In fact, it comes at us in weird stops and starts, and we resist thinking about these things. You know, and then suddenly it will become quite urgent, as it does, to, for instance, to Sergius, to figure out, wait, where do I come from? And you go and interrogate some living family member or or friend of the family and say, well, you know, what was going on? Why did it? Why was it like this at this time? Or, you know, who was my mother really? Or whatever the question might be. And so I wanted the book to involve the readers experiencing it as a series of um, a, a kind of dynamic negotiations with with the past. As readers, one of the things that's so much fun is um, putting the pieces of this book together. There are parts where we'll see something, somebody or some event mentioned in passing early on. Then we'll get the full picture later on. And then and then that's just really exciting. And then there's a lot of the reverse, too, where we'll see the full picture. And then somebody else later on will just mention something in passing. You'll say, I know what happened there. Right, right. And it's so much fun. It really well, is like trying to remember back on pieces of your own life. I'm 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 really uh I'm really glad it strikes you that way. I mean, I saw it as pivoting on a few, you know, questions, really specific questions, the kind that bedevil you in in thinking about a family's life, you know, uh in in this case, you know, the the sort of ultimate one is well, why didn't why didn't Rose take care of her grandson? Why didn't she adopt him when his parents were killed? And further, you know, uh, who who said what to whom about, uh, you know, who spoke to the judge and what did they say to the judge to make it impossible for her to to adopt her grandson? You know, what was the the secret word that was passed along? And of course, it turns out it's an episode from very, very early in the book when when Rose puts her her mother's her her daughter's head briefly inside the family oven, <laughs> whether she means it as a serious murder attempt or as an expressive gesture. It's it's you know uh, an ugly legacy, and it 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 it, it lurks. I really love the way that you've developed the relationship between uh, Miriam, the daughter, and Rose, the mother. And uh, to also to weave in their different experiences of of New York, and so I'd like you to talk about creating their relationship to one another and their relationship to the neighborhood. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I have my own version of, and you know, I wrote it in many ways in the Fortress of Solitude of being an outer borough kid who has this their eye one eye cocked to this glamorous skyline of Manhattan and thinks that's where the action is, you know. And growing up in the era I did, I guess I was one of the last people to grow up this way in Brooklyn. 
the story of being a Brooklynite for a long time was how do you get out? <laughs> how do you export yourself either to Manhattan or to some other wider world where things weren't quite so scrappy? So Miriam, the daughter in this book in the 50s, growing up in Queens, feels cloistered in a similar way and like she needs to break out. So I related to this very intimately. It had been my story, and it had also in some ways been my mother's story. Of course, I had to fill this in with a hundred borrowed details from other people's memoirs and, and, and from my own projections and fantasies. But I think that the, the mystery of, you know, here's my grandmother who rather heroically raised a child alone. She was a working mom with a single daughter through, you know, the end of World War II and through the 50s, you know, the, the intensity of that, that relationship, the solitude of the two of them alone in that apartment, how much they depended on each other and how much they must have been one another's only focal point for all their frustrations or all their yearning. It just seemed to me supercharged. So I wanted to try to, you know, unpack it and explore that, you know, what finally can, can never be known. I thought you did a magnificent job of mixing in real people and real world details with your created family and created world. And uh, the research for this book must have been incredible and intense. And there's just, in retrospect, you think about it. But when we're reading it, you never think about it, well, that, which is amazing. That honors my my hopes better than I can say. I, you know, I'm very suspicious of research in novels. I always think uh, when I know it's there, I, you know, that's usually a, not a, a good sign. It means I'm thinking about the homework instead of the, the you know, or the, the rehearsal instead of the show, let's say. <laughs> I want to be in the show. And I want my readers to always feel that they're just in a, in a great show and not think about the, the hours of rehearsal at all. And in fact, you know, my research was very peculiar in this book. It was extensive. It was done in fits and starts. It was done... Uh, you know, sometimes in a kind of blind sense, I would just wander into uh, archives of various kinds, knowing I needed something, not knowing what it was, more texture, more of a grasp of what kinds of lives were being lived in, you know, 1957 or, or 1963, you know, in these, in these milieu that I was, I was invoking. And at the same time, I'd learn a tremendous number of great details, fantastic stuff. And I'd think, oh, I'm going to blow my reader away with this. I've got to put this this fact in. And then when the, I came to that threshold, I I wouldn't. The fiction had to win out. The, finally, a novel has to be a story. The reader has to be lost in the dream. I have to remain immersed in a kind of dream of language and characters and invention. And so t- too many facts pierce that illusion. So there are great things that I discovered, some of the greatest that I that I couldn't put into the book. You know, there's this famous uh, saying uh, about writing, you have to kill your darlings, right? If you make up some phrase or some little joke or, or bit of cleverness that seems that you're excessively fond of, probably that's exactly what you have to cut from the book. It's probably, um, it's too clever. It's, it's going to be a distraction. So you kill your darling. Well, when you're a researcher and you're writing fiction, you have to kill a lot, of, a lot of the world's darlings, too. You know, some of the coolest stuff that comes comes across uh, your your desk doesn't fit in the book. It just, you have to you have to stick with the characters and their lives and their feelings and the language uh, and logic of the book itself. Well, one of the things I think that was so interesting about this book was your picture of, of the, the Communist Party. And I love the perception that at one point, I think uh, Rose has <clears throat> of like the bourgeois desire to fit in and be a big part <laughs> of the Communist Party, which just seems so contradictory. So I'd like to just talk a little yeah. bit about the history of American <laughs> communism. Yeah. Well, I absorbed a certain amount of it. It's very perplexing, you know, alternately totally galvanizing, inspiring stuff. You know, you think, oh, my God, these stories have to be told. These people were so heroic in their dreaming of a better society, and they they did have all sorts of... Their, their footprint, now invisible, is on our current life. You know, they were at the very vanguard. They were the, the foot soldiers of things like the civil rights era. I mean, or, you know, all kinds of egalitarian movements 
and and labor movements, it's very paradoxical because in one sense, you know, a communist was meant to be sworn to overthrowing America, right? Weren't they our enemy? And yet they were doing all this kind of trench work to make this place better. And some of it stuck. On the other hand, they're a tormentingly divided, paranoid, um, deluded, you know, mass of, of uh, factions and, and just the self-destruction that the left can impose on itself. You know, you could never stop smacking your forehead. Encountering this legacy, I think anyone who's been a participant in left struggles probably relates to some extent to what I'm talking about because uh, that didn't end with the the end of the great era of the uh, overt American communists. It's true of all sorts of later left movements as well. So what do you make of all of this? You know, well, what I made of it were the lives. I I found these human beings again and again who just mattered to me because they lived at the very edge of their convictions, at the very limit that their nervous system could endure of wishing to live in a different world and live differently themselves. But what were they? They were human. They were subject to all sorts of unconscious pressures and 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 contradictions as well. And Rose, so you, you talk about her social aspiration. Rose, at some points, I mean, give her credit, she at least recognizes she's She's wanting to, you know, be part of a a a, a great marriage in a in a great so- social milieu. She wants to she wants to be a star in her own sphere, and that sphere is communism. You know, um, she's also, you know, and she may be lo- a little less conscious of this. She's kind of into authority figures. She has a kind of a a thing for a man in uniform. You know, she 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 digs the beat cop. She digs the the local uh, priest or or you know um, the the union shop steward, not just because they might be doing something noble or or altruistic, but because she kind of likes the 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 sexy edge she gets from their uh, authoritarian power. And so this is a you know a weird thing to find in yourself if you're supposed to be committed to it, an egalitarian society, right? Uh, but you know this is what human lives produce are these kinds of um, uh, confusions. What you call at one point, I love it, the idea of, and I think so many people identify with this, an anti-American American. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the communists had a real slogan, which I, which I dusted off. Uh, communism is 20th century Americanism. And now that can seem so peculiar to hear it now. In fact, it was said so often it was like a kind of a eye-rolling cliche among, among leftists at the time. But the, what's the assertion there? It's that this country was founded by utopian dreamers who were looking for freedom and 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 uh, equality in 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 a radical sense, and that so the communists in the '30s told themselves we're more American than than the people who who suspect and denounce us because we're actually carrying forward the the revolutionary ideals that that make this country. And I think you know that's the trick of being American is that it's a legacy of dissent and and um, fitfulness and, you know, you could you, forget the left end of the spectrum. You could put the the Tea Party in the same framework and say there's nothing more American than uh, wanting to t- tear down what's in front of you and, and live in a better world. And so this place was made of waves and waves of failed utopian schemes, right? It, it's kind of a an almost science fiction vision of the impossibly happy future that never, you, that's what you talk about right. communism. It's a prophecy of the future that will probably never come. Well, right. To, to, to be American is to demand that you live in a, a, a better world than the one that is your apparent legacy. Well, when you're coming from Europe and you discover America and it's the immigrant dream, that's a very easy narrative to romanticize. We did it. But once you're American and you still feel... This world isn't good enough. We need to rip it all apart or, or you know, uh, find a new frontier or, you know, or revolutionize again. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're engaged in a very, well, you know, <laughs> what Rose would call a dialectic. <laughs> I, I, I love, too, the, your vision of uh, Tommy Gogan. And I, I just looked at that name so many times. As as the novel unfolded, G O G A N, G O G A N. What is the matter with that name? 
Yeah. Well, it, it, it's it's like a lot of American names, including my own. It's a boiled down European name, right? It, in you know, in the old country, it was spelled and pronounced differently, and and had some really explicit link to uh, family lineage, and I guess in in Ireland, you know, who knows how many generations of of Georgans there were to 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 meet. But in America, it gets sort of stripped of a couple of its vowels, and and uh, you know, maybe that, I guess that stands for some of that character Tommy's peculiar sensations of being a bit of a. A, a two-dimensional guy when he wants to be 3D. He sort of feels like there's not enough of him. <laughs> uh, I think that's one of the one of the most powerful and I think poignant visions in this book is when he's trying to complete his second album and he realizes that it's just not there. There's, there's no second album in him, yeah. Well, you know, I guess one of the things I write about a lot is failure, aspiration and falling short, but also the constructed nature of identity, which is, you know, has a, a double bind in it. I've often celebrated it, you know, in, in my sort of ecstasy of influence mode. I often have said, look, we're all just weird compilations and, and, and we're made of tatters and we're a collage. We're, 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 we're a curated object. We're not, we're not whole. And, um, and I believe in that in a lot of ways, but I think there could be a, you know, and this relates to American identity again, there can be a, 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 a trap door into feeling that everything you have is a a half understood uh, legacy, a, a a a scrap or tatter that you've you know pasted over an absence, or or that you've you know kind of cobbled together, but it isn't enough. You know, where's the where's the authentic solid self that I need? And that's Tommy all over. He's really stuck with. Noticing that he's made of received parts and and not feeling too great about it. Uh, one thing I noticed too in this book is you have so much fun with the names of your characters, and this is carried through I think uh, throughout your New York trilogy so far, and and it's a kind of a Dickensian. It gives the the novel a Dickensian feel, but I think there's a a greater Dickensian feel in this too. And and you even mention at one point describing Rose as being like Miss Havisham, and mm-hmm. I think as opposed to great expectations, maybe this is uh, lowered expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That could have been such a good title for this book: lowered expectations, or uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, gutter expectations. Let's call them. <laughs> well. Uh, Dickens haunts me. I mean, I, he's he's the greatest. He can do everything. And I do, you know, it makes me very uh, feel I'm flattering myself in a way that I that I that I will I'll continue to enjoy if I think of my use of names as having to do with Dickens. But I also associate it with some other writers as well. You know, if you look at the names, even at someone who's in other ways, their surface is a little less antic. But Henry James gives his characters very peculiar names and they're almost always revealing ones that that somehow have some symbolic or allegorical charge that connects to the story and then in more recent you know times there are writers like Pynchon who do this as well so i feel like i have pretty good people at my back let's say for picking the weird names but it's also to me it's just a place where the language you know if you name your character bob smith or or ed jones in the in the somehow in the misguided cause of making it more persuasive. Well, first of all, people have weird names. Weird names are all all around us. And if you put the names just from life into uh, fiction, they'd look weird too, because names are weird. They have, they're, 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 they are language with all sorts of embedded properties and, and eccentricities in them. But I also think, you know, I'm working with language and I want all the language in the book to be charged. So if I, if I pick something boring as the name, it's like a, just a failed opportunity to be, you know, to to make everything in the book uh, have a, a a linguistic power. I I really love to Albert Zimmer, and, and one of the things that I think you do very well in this book is to give us characters who at first we kind of only barely see, but then you'll just open up the door, and with Albert Zimmer you do something really interesting to open up the door through letters. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I guess I'm very. Um, interested in in my books, if I look at them, you know, as a kind of a long uh, set of clues. I'm interested in the presence of absence. Characters who leave but are still 
the, the negative space is really charged. People, you know, obviously if it's a parent, you have no choice but to dwell on that person if they ran away or, or died. You know, you're, you're stuck thinking about them in their, in the, in their absence. And, and how characters who go away but don't die, you know, become these, uh, what would you say, the kind of pregnant concerns in in life stories and in and in and in my case in the novels you know if you get a letter from someone uh you study it you know what what are they doing where'd they go what's what's why aren't they here and so albert is one of those uh present in absent types in my fiction um but you know i i i borrowed the method of putting substantial letters in fiction uh in my mind i thought of uh iris murdoch when i was doing that she will stop a very long novel, a very fulsome novel where she's describing characters, and suddenly have one of them write a letter to the other, and she'll just plop it into the narrative. And it just always, it's like turning a a magic corner in a house to a space you didn't realize was there. To hear one of the characters just justifying themselves and, and, and hear their own voice and, you know, uh, feel the pressure of them trying to clarify or improve some situation... between themselves and another character, and I always thought, that's a great trick. I want to really play one of those tricks in this book. It's such a powerful piece of writing because where the rest of the prose in the book is so bubbling and full, Albert is just so dialed back, and he's in a very peculiar situation. I'd like you to talk about creating that situation. Did you go to those places you talk about in the book? I've been to Germany a bunch. He's writing her letters from uh, East Germany in... uh, you know, in the in the '60s. So of course I couldn't go there, <laughs> and what an incredibly specific situation it is, right? To be on the uh, German side of the Iron Curtain, still so German, but so controlled and tricky, a, a society paranoid and and uh, divided in in several different senses, right? And he himself is a character who's tricky, divided, and and um, and disingenuous. He's not he's not being very real with himself or anyone else about what his uh, p- particular allegiances have led him into. You know, he basically, out of a kind of crazy amount of idealism about the Soviet Union, he repatriates, even though he's a German Jew, after World War II, he repatriates to Germany. And there, in East Germany, he ends up being a kind of a, a stooge, part of a propaganda uh, system, you know, if not a if not a spy, he's not really an espionage, but he's in he's in the business of generating really boring uh, counter historical white papers, propaganda about the Soviet role in in World War II. Um, you know, it basically compromised every ideal he ever might have conceived for himself, and so um, he's a tortured soul for sure. And it works so well. There's this. Actually, and there's a lot of humor in this book. This book is really funny. It made me laugh out loud a lot. And one of the the aspects, funniest parts I found, was in that series of letters, some things we don't see. And I'd like you to just talk in general about your sense of humor in this book, which makes it so uh, joyful and fun to read. Well, I'm 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 so thrilled you see it in that light because I felt above all, you know, the ironies of 20th century. <laughs> Uh, political lives that I was exploring, you'd better you'd better laugh or you'd cry, right? And 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 that was how I felt, and I felt that was true in the glimpses I also had of survivors of those legacies. That they, you know, their way of remaining dynamic and 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 to some degree optimistic was to have, you know, to see themselves as enmeshed in something bizarre. Finally, as well as tragic, that the story of the American left was beautiful. And also, absolutely bizarre in its specifics and its uh, its demands. You know, the demands it made of of its greatest believers. And you know, I also I just I like I I think that for me humor is the way into the human story. And I've always preferred you know the great writers I love most. I've I've I felt they they make me laugh no matter what else they're trying to do and how harder road they're leading me down, they also make me laugh and, and that it, it opens doors. Uh, I really wanted to talk a little bit about Miriam, who's such an interesting character. 
between her relationship with Tommy and her relationship with Rose. Talk about uh, creating this character and her voice as a kind of a counterpoint to Rose. Yeah. Well, you know, so Rose is kind of uh, a great idealist, but also uh, a bully. She's a kind of into authority and develops a lot of, uh, you know, personal authority. She, she, She makes those around her feel galvanized and inspired, but also terrified of her rage or or her her even her arched eyebrow is a kind of a bludgeon right she's she's um and she's very isolated her rose's other paradox is that she believes in collectivism and 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 uh egalitarianism and she idealizes you know uh the commons and and idealizes her own neighborhood but she's awfully isolated her behavior and her style leave her kind of high and dry. Her daughter Miriam is instinctively and in some native way the reverse. She is gregarious and beguiling and charismatic and people gravitate into her circle and her life ends up super populated. She she lives in communes and she's always uh sort of on the street and on uh, in the in the thick of some demonstration or or you know um among people. And she is romanticized by her friends as a kind of a, you know, I make the joke, uh, a Marxist pixie dream girl in the book that, you know, she she becomes a kind of muse because she seems so to embody what the counterculture idealizes, the way she, her her, her readiness to play and be polymorphously free, her... her um, unpretentious, uh, you know, sense of involvement and, and connection. But this also has a cost. There's a double bind in being anyone's muse or being an inspiration or being being someone else's emblem of freedom. It traps you in that role of always being delightful and always being connected when, you know, your own darker undertow, your own darker legacies or your own private pain might be, uh, uh, therefore, uh, inexpressible. You also have uh, some great characters, the Lookins. <laughs> so, I love Douglas Lookins in Cicero, who, as yeah. you said, was the, the inception for your novel. So tell us a little bit about creating these characters. Well, so the Lookinses are a black family, and, and the, the father, Douglas, is a very proud, very defiant, self-made Success. He's a he's a black police lieutenant in the NYPD at a time when almost no, I mean this is historically the case, almost no blacks got to that level of advancement in in you know what was a very very difficult life path to be uh, a policeman in a in a city, even a city as uh, embracing as New York City, but in what was effectively a racist society. You know, well before civil rights had had made its mark. He was beginning to do this work of, of being a policeman in Harlem and then he, he moves to Queens where his authority is wielded over, you know, largely a white neighborhood, Irish and, and, and Jewish and Italian people. What a life. What a terribly challenging life. And he finds himself defined uh, by his own anger and intensity and and the force of his own ideals. You know, he he's a cop in a period also when many, many police in the in the New York City Police Department and probably elsewhere were uh, made accommodations, were on the take, were on were on the pad as as the, the euphemism went, and he he refuses to get along in that way. So his his story is a little bit like a Serpico story. The cop who becomes isolated from the other cops because he won't play the game. What happens to him? Well, he has a child he doesn't understand. Cicero, the character we mentioned earlier, is born soft, nerdish, intellectually predisposed, shy, and as it turns out, homosexual. And none of the things that Douglas cares for, like sports or police work, or a kind of Eisenhower Republican style, you know, a kind of a, a, 
a very uh, mainstream, leaning towards conservative patriotism. None of these things does Cicero identify with or, or embrace. And so Douglas looks at his boy and he just wonders, where did you come from? <laughs> It, that's not an uncommon reaction for parents yeah. and children, is it? Yeah. And Cicero, in turn, becomes, you know, I, I think in some ways, even though he's, his own life is very specific and very problematic, he becomes, uh, you know, for me, in some ways, almost like a uh, an author surrogate within the book, someone who is thinking hard about impossible things. He's recollecting knowing Rose as a child, and he's recollecting his own parents, and he's meeting the grandson in that family, Sergius, and, you know, (laughs) though he may also tend to smack his forehead, he's trying his hardest to get his brain around. What does it all add up to? I I love this continuing uh, vision of America kind of rebelling against itself, which starts back in the 50s and continues all the way to the 21st century. And I think that you carry through this thread really well. So I'd like you to talk about uh, crafting this and weaving this into the novel. Well, you know, I mean, as as difficult as being a historical novelist is, and I'd never really put myself in that position before, it was quite intimidating. Nevertheless, the past at least pretends to sit still. It's in the archive, right? It's all, when you go and you open it up, it's all arguing with itself. It's all contradictory and crazy and explodes into life. But you can walk out of the archive <laughs> and then pretend, as everyone does, that we all know what history is and what it means and what happened and it's all sealed up. The present life, which is, you know, uh, always changing and and always subjective and that I'm and a helpless participant in the world that we live in now where we flip on the radio and we hear the argument continue in one form or another, you know, or where, as it happened to me while I was in the middle of writing this book, suddenly the Occupy movement erupts and seems seems to suddenly bring into enunciation again all of these perplexities, all of these yearnings, all of these hopes, and also the, the same kind of behaviors, contradictions, or um, self defeats that that typify why um you know uh those yearnings aren't realized you know these things happen and you you have even less of a handle on them than you do on um the contradictions of history because you're inside the present life so if you're trying to write about the public sphere in the united states you're dealing with so many different layers of uh denial and contradiction even just in yourself you know how do I feel about this stuff? Can I allow myself to feel about this stuff? Can I allow myself to relate to this stuff? You know, we all hold it at arm's length, or we look at the the public commons as a kind of a as if it's like the Jerry Springer show. Oh, look at those poor, sad combatants arguing hopelessly and making a cartoon of of what they claim are principles. Well, you know, guess what? That's as good as we've got that's we're inside that life they're arguing on our behalves and uh, whether we embrace it or not uh so i had to try to let this stuff intrude into the reality of my novel or i wouldn't be you know doing my theme justice but believe me it's it's hard and i it, you know it's it's like what i said earlier about research the novel demands that it be that you obey the the the, the art form which means you can only let a certain amount of this stuff come in because it's so so powerful, so distorting. And then, and then you have to let your characters contend with that. As you were writing this novel, you had to be intimately aware of your previous novels set in this kind of universe. And I'd like you to talk about these kind of poles of gravity for you as a writer and, and all your other work. Yeah. I was thinking about um, a lot of the stuff that you wrote about in the ecstasy of influence kind of pokes through this book too as well. Well, sure. I mean, I think, you know, in a way, the ecstasy of influence, that, that essay specifically, um, and then some parts of the, the larger um, compilation that I that I placed it into, that, that large book called The Ecstasy of Influence, is where I began to articulate my inchoate political self better. I won't claim 
well or consistently or that I'm some sort of brilliant and persuasive advocate for for any single position, but that I began to let my own legacy as a protester, as an activist, you know, because I grew up inside a family that cared, you know, was committed uh, again and again and again and continuously to various causes. I think by writing about the commons, you know, when I did, um, you know, the first the first avenue was just thinking about copyright and 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 reuse and appropriation and and then I began to realize this is everything, you know, and, and so it does connect. Dissident Gardens is a story about people living in a version of community that is a commons. They believe it belongs to everyone and no one. It's not property. It can't be commodified. And then I think steadily, remorselessly, the commons is taken away. It becomes, you know... Uh, you know, our, our, our society has become increasingly privatized and corporately controlled. And on this, you know, this much of a left critique I'm willing to uh, articulate and embrace, even if I don't know where to take it, that, you know, that is a long, steady, tragic development in American life and one that's very hard for most people to define, although they they recognize it in miniature domains, you know, whether it's a an argument about something like, uh, you know, radio bandwidth or or a park that used to, you know, just be a park, but now it seems to have been sold off to some, you know, uh, basically to some sponsor who put their name on it and turned it into a kind of a billboard. Uh, people get it even if they can't grasp the implications, uh, uh, you know, how, because the implications are devastating. They're, they're so enormous. It, it's interesting the way when you phrase it like that because I think there is a well, there's certainly a tragic arc to this book, but it, it's kind of balanced by your antic vision, and I think that that's a really, really important balance for you as a writer and for us as readers to to see these two aspects uh, at war with one another. Essentially, I I, I I love the way you see my work. I'm really I'm really proud of it when I hear you talk of it that way, because and I now here this transcends politics totally, and I'll 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 build from what the the lovely praise you just offered me and and characterize all of my writing as being in some way about abiding with the 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 depths the darknesses in life through connection humor uh, animation animatedness. You know, people making something, even as they feel uh, that they may be on the brink of a, a devastating void or vacuum, that human life demands that we answer that with uh, with with liveliness and 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 uh, you know attempts to to reach out or connect or or animate others at at so many levels. You know, at every level. <laughs> Well, I, I love too. There's a a feeling of kind of a cuckooness, <laughs> I guess, throughout this book that that is both it makes you laugh and you makes you like the characters, but it's also kind of sweetly nostalgic and and sad too at the same time. And I think that that kind of vision uh, of Humanity is somewhat deluded, but fun <laughs> is what makes this book so much fun, and also connects these books as well. Well, great, I like that too. And uh, you know, probably, of course, the bottom line on my on the cuckooness of my characters, uh, no matter what framework I'm working with, is that I'm, pro- I'm probably cuckoo, and I don't and I don't see it. But I like I like that that vibe. And you know, often when I feel myself, I like that you say there's almost a mournfulness about the cuckooness. You know, when I look at the past, one of the things I feel is that we live in a very hidebound conformist period and we don't tell ourselves that. The story we tell is that we live in this like impossibly jaded kind of you know, posthumous era where everything has been said and done and and we're very sophisticated and ironic, but actually I think we're quite quite priggish and very easily offended. And, you know, when you look at one of these weird rehearsals of uh, outrage like the Miley Cyrus scandal, I think, have we gotten anywhere in terms of like kind of 
lightening up or, or, or becoming more polymorphous and free. No, in fact, we're, we're very Victorian right now. And that, you know, if I look at things, you know, recently I saw this terrific, just terrific documentary on Richard Pryor's life and career. It was aired on one of the cable stations rather than being given a theatrical release. But it was full of these clips, you know, of this guy fighting propriety in the 60s and 70s. And one of the things that struck me is how little the world that he was trying to overturn was ever actually overturned on the level of responsiveness and 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 genuine freedom. I mean, we may, we have these unmistakable accomplishments now, right? Gay people can get married. But at the same time, it seems to me they're getting married in like, uh, on, a, on a 1950s model of, of propriety. There's something about real freedom that's still terrifying at another level, expressive freedom, you know? And so I see f- progress on one level and rollbacks on another, you know? And one of the things about looking at the Richard Pryor documentary that was so uh, overturning to, well, you know, to the idea that the vanity that we live in the most free time was that it's, he's not alone. He's there goosing people, right? But the people he's goosing, sometimes it's, it's Johnny Carson or, or Diana, or uh, Diana, is her name Diana Shore? Diana Shore. Diana Shore. They seem much, much freer in the way they can respond in reply. And I think television isn't like that anymore. Television's very packaged and slick and everything is exactly as it should be. Even if you might have this, you know, yeah, okay, you can, you know, at 1130, you can switch to MTV and see a show called Real Sex. Even that, you know, reality TV is very, uh, in its way, it's also very much kabuki. It's like, here's, here we'll laugh at these people for acting as if they can be free in some very limited ways. Uh, And then we'll go back to all the things we already believed about, you know, the smug belief that life is just so and it's just so. But when you see footage from the 60s or the 70s where people were experimenting with a more polymorphous expressivity in their lives, you can think, wow, we, we, we don't match that. We really don't match that. Except sometimes in our novels, including the latest novel by Jonathan Lethem, Dissident Gardens. I've been speaking with Jonathan Lethem. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Thank you so much. It was a great talk. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.